join me in prayer this morning. Father, we uh, thank you that we can sing songs that have great meaning uh, to you. Uh, that little medley has great theological motifs in it, but indeed at the end you are great. Thank you for your greatness shown in our lives uh, when we come to you in faith. You forgive us of our sin, wash us clean, uh, make us new. Uh, we are new children at that moment of faith. Thank you for the spirit that empowers us for daily living. Uh, thank you for uh, just the presence that you have in our lives. We give you thanks for that. And uh, if there is one among us that doesn't know the power of the cross of Christ, might they be freed today as they come to you in faith. But we uh, submit the scriptures to you today, anoint them, uh, use them to your, your uh, advantage. Uh, may they be used to transform us into Christ's likeness as we leave this place. And we give you the praise and the glory. Amen. We are in uh, the book of Romans. We are in uh, chapter uh, 8. Uh, Pastor Michael's in Italy. He always wears suits. So I figured someone had to kind of fill in the gap. So in case you're wondering why I'm in a suit. I'm not doing a wedding. There's not a funeral. And this, I'm not applying for a job somewhere. So <laughs> have suit, must wear it, correct? Yeah. The truly spiritual wear suits. I'm just trying to help you. Yeah, you're laughing now, I'm sure. Romans chapter 8. Um, I grew up... Uh, well, I was born in the late 50s, so I grew up, you know, as a kid in the 60s. Uh, and you typically do, like, uh, get used to what your father is used to as a, as a son. I was the only, only son. I was the middle child between two girls. Uh, and my dad loved sports. So, you know, I, whatever my dad was into is what I was into. So back in the uh, 60s, uh, when you only had, like, one channel on television, <laughs> like two maybe, uh, with the rabbit ears and, you know, kind of moving everything around to try to get a station, uh, we were at my, uh, my dad was a U.S. Customs officer. He was a supervisor of the port of entry, uh, and the port director at the time, uh, J.D. Williams, uh, eventually moved back here to work uh, with Nixon back in the 70s when I was in school. But uh, back in the 60s, he was my dad's port director, and my dad was his supervisor when my dad was, uh, I think, in his late 20s. And so uh, there was a fight. There was a boxing match on. So my dad's like, we were at J.D.'s house, and my dad's like, son, you, you need to sit down and watch this fight. I know it's in black and white. Because that's, that's all we had back then. And so I'm like, fight. I'm like, what do you want me to watch? And so, uh, so this came on, the little tiny black and white. Uh, uh, wasn't Muhammad Ali back then. Remember his real name was you know, Cassius Clay. Uh, yeah, it was Cassius Clay. Uh, I was always confused as a child as they changed his name. Uh, but um, it was Cassius Clay uh, fighting Sonny Liston. And my dad said, son, you, you need to watch this heavyweight match. And so, so I did. I watched all rounds. Uh, did you see it? Date yourself. How many were not alive in 64? <laughs> uh, almost the entire congregation. Okay, great. Uh, well, just come with me. This is a tour of boxing history. Uh, so that was the first fight I, I ever watched uh, as a child, and I've watched many since then. Uh, I find it very interesting, and, and I guess it's because I liked wrestling, too, in high school, just the whole contact thing. Uh, and, and so that was my first introduction to that athletic event, and you've got to be in awesome shape to do that. Uh, and from that match, I watched other matches, but the one that really uh, has held my attention over the years, and there, there's something spiritual in this, there always is, correct? Yes. Amen. Praise God. Thank you. Um, so we'll get to the spiritual part here in just a minute. Just if you're visiting for Thanksgiving, what's this guy talking about? Just hang with me, okay? Uh, so the, the next big fight that I really, really got into uh, was um, the one between uh, uh, Evander Holyfield and Mike Tyson. Yeah. Uh, do you remember this? Yeah. One person. 
Yeah. How many were alive in 1996? Yeah, a few, few more. Excellent. Okay. See how much life you missed? I mean, uh, 1996, uh, Mike was known as Iron Mike. Why? One punch, man. It was over for you. And it's usually third round. It's over. Boom, you're on the mat. Uh, and so he, he, uh, he, he, uh, he had some personal issues, no doubt, criminal activity. And he, he wound up in prison and did some prison time. And he was kind of a menacing individual. Uh, but um, when he got out of prison, uh, he, he took on Evander Holyfield for the world championship uh, uh, title in uh, November of 1996. And this was the match of all matches at the time, and so everybody wanted to watch this thing. I don't know if you saw it, but it, w it was an amazing boxing match. Uh, and everybody that was betting, uh, like in Las Vegas, put all their money not on Evander Holyfield, but on Mike Tyson, because they're like, no one gets past the third round with this guy. Uh, and they, they made a wrong bet at that point, because it was some kind of fight. Uh, and uh, Evander was a Christian. Did you know this? He was a devout Christian. And he saw his gloves as the justice of God. <laughs> And he was going to teach Tyson a little biblical uh, discipline. And so he had his strategy, and the, 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 the match started. Uh, the first three rounds were usually when Tyson usually knocked the guy out at, you know, by the third. That didn't happen. By the fourth round, uh, Evander's still there working his strategy. The fourth round, uh, uh, it's become difficult for Tyson to handle Evander Holyfield. And they thought he was gonna, Evander was going to lose because he was at the end of his career, almost ready for retirement. You know, he's going to be sucking air by the third round, and it's over for him. That didn't happen. Uh, fifth round, uh, uh, Tyson hurt Holyfield. Uh, but by the sixth round, they butted heads, uh, and Evander put a cut above the, the eye of uh, Tyson, Iron Mike. So his eye started to close, hard to box with one eye. And uh, the match began to change. The sixth round, uh, Holyfield actually hit Tyson with a short left to the chest. He went down to the mat, which did not happen. Iron Mike's on the mat. The crowd went psycho. It's a biblical word. Crazy. <laughs> psycho. They went crazy. They started chanting. Holyfield, 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 Holyfield. Well, you know, that, that was the sixth round. They put Iron Mike on the mat. By the tenth round, I'm still getting into my sermon. Stay with me. Tenth round, powerful jab, devastating right hand, nearly took out Tyson again. Uh, and, and Tyson then was leaning on the ropes. He, he couldn't defend himself, couldn't keep his arms up. And Evander's just, you know, pounding away at him. Uh, that was the tenth round. The eleventh round started. Uh, the eleventh round lasted for 37 seconds. Why? Because uh, uh, the referee, Mitch Halpern, stopped the match after 11 punches because Iron Mike wasn't Iron Mike anymore. And he couldn't effectively take on the blistering uh, strategy and offense of Evander. And that, that stopped that match. The winner was Holyfield. You know, you cannot, you cannot pay attention to things like that and not, not see it's a spiritual thing. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Like in what way? W were you here last week when we talked about Romans 7? Yeah. What did, what did Paul say in Romans 7? Uh, well, let's, let's just review verse 19. And tell me if this is not a spiritual motif, this boxing thing. Paul said back then, I as a Christian, you know, I want to win over the flesh, but I don't always win. He says, for the, the, that, which, that which I wish, you know, that I want to do as a Christian, obey God, I don't always do it. Uh, but I practice the very evil that I do not wish. There's a struggle in my life between the flesh and the spirit. And that's chapter 7. And, and you can't look at this and go, that, that's like boxing. Isn't, isn't Christianity like boxing? Who's your opponent? Well, it's, it's, we're going to change the name from Iron Mike to Iron Flesh. Just go with it. 
You try to come up with stuff every Sunday. You know, it's <laughs> such a loving congregation. It's, it's like iron flesh. Because your flesh is like iron at times. It's like just when you thought you were on your feet, spiritually speaking, bam, left hook and you're down on the mat. You're like, that sin gets me every time. You know what I mean? I'm down on the mat. How did that happen? I just told God I won't do that again. I won't look at that again. I won't flirt with her. I won't do this. I won't do that. And boom, down on the mat. Now you understand what I'm talking about. Now you're quiet. <laughs> See, it's, it's that iron flesh. And Paul says, the thing that I wish to do, I don't always do it. But the thing that I, that's a struggle. The struggle. You're a spiritual boxer. Last week, the analogy was wrestling. Remember, if you were here, wrestling. Uh, now we're going to look at boxing because it is, like, it is like boxing. You're a spiritual boxer. How do you get victory when iron flesh like nails you sometimes? I mean, how do you get victory? Uh, Paul's going to teach you how you get victory uh, over the flesh. But first, we need to define terms. What, is, what does Paul mean when he talks about the flesh uh, in chapter 7 and 8? Uh, and we want to look closely at that because you need to understand the flesh. Uh, William Barclay is really great at uh, defining terms. Uh, here's what he says about the flesh. He says, quote, He, Paul, really means human nature when he talks about the flesh and all of its weaknesses as he means human in its vulnerability to sin. He says he means that part of man which gives sin its bridgehead. You've got a fleshly body, but it's got evil desires. comes with the packaging. He says he means sinful human nature apart from Christ, everything that attaches a man to the world uh, instead of to God. He says that phrase, to live according to the flesh, is to live a life dominated by the dictates and demands and the desires of the sinful human nature instead of a life dominated by the dictates and the love of God. He says the flesh is the lower side of human nature, and we all have it. Now, at the moment of conversion, uh, you are positionally forgiven of your sin. We've talked about that in chapters 1 to 5. Your faith justifies you in God's courtroom, but you still have what kind of body? Have you noticed it lately? It's still fleshly. Positionally, you're holy. Practically, you have an issue because you're still in this body until God transforms it. So you fight against the flesh, iron flesh. How do you get victory? Uh, Romans uh, 7 tells you that there's times when you don't do well. But then he, he's, he, he ends with a cry at the end of that chapter. We're still reviewing, getting to my sermon. You still with me? He gets to a cry, verses 24 and following. Oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says in verse 25, thanks be to God through, the preposition is important, tells you the means by which you get deliverance. Deliverance, victory out on the ring uh, comes through Jesus Christ, our Lord. And I closed out that sermon last week by telling you, if you're wrestling in the metaphor, he's your backup buddy, you call him. God help me, God help me. We're gonna move on from that metaphor uh, into the boxing metaphor and answer the question, how does the believer who's boxing the world, the flesh, and the devil gain victory over iron flesh? How How do you do it? Uh, We're going to look at the first four verses. Now, bear in mind, uh, there was a Puritan back in 1674. His name was uh, Thomas Horton. When he preached uh, through these uh, uh, verses of chapter um, uh, 8, 39 verses, he had 46 sermons on 39 verses. I think I'm going for 80. No. How could you preach 46 verses on? Why would you? Uh, The reason why he spent uh, that many sermons on those few verses is because he as a pastor realized how important it was for his flock to understand how to defeat iron flesh isn't that what our culture needs i mean the flesh is running rampant but how do you as a christian gain victory so you can be a light to those about you that's what i want to talk about so now we're gonna look at the sermon proper we're finally there what are the what are the points for victory how how does this happen he's gonna give you two points 
from the text of how to gain victory. Number one, you must uh, realize the principle of victorious Christian living. The, the principle is uh, detailed in verse one. What's the principle? He says, uh, well, pay attention to this, Paul says. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Just stop right there. Make a couple of grammatical observations, which uh, grammar is important to, re- to understand why the biblical text is inspired. Every word, why they chose this word, that word, why they placed this word here and not there, etc. It's all inspired of God, right? So what's interesting to note is in the Greek text, which is the inspired text behind the uh, New Testament book of Romans, the very first word in the sentence is not there is. That's not the very first word in the sentence. The very first word in the sentence is udin. Udin is no. No appears first. Why? Paul's telling you emphatically, he's taking you by your, 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 your suit coat and going, pay attention as a spiritual boxer. If you know Christ as Savior, there is no condemnation in the ring that you are forgiven. No matter how good or bad you box the flesh, never forget your position. What a coach. And then he says, uh, the, therefore, uh, and I've told you before, and I'm sure you've heard since you were a kid, because I always did, if the word therefore is there, it's there for a reason. It's a hinge. It's a, it's, a, it's a rhetorical hinge between what he just spoke about and what he wants to talk about further in, in, in this chapter. He said, remember the end of the last chapter. I said, who can deliver me from the body, this fleshly body? Well, one day when Christ appears, I shall be delivered. But until then, I need help from Christ. But he's going to develop that even further in, the, in chapter 8 to tell you more about the power that comes to you. So we want to first understand the principle that is detailed in these verses, that as a Christian boxer against the flesh, you are not condemned in the, in the ring anymore. Why? Because your faith has justified you. You're positionally holy, and you're working out your holiness in battling against the flesh. The position is described when you go on and look at the last little clause of this text where Paul says, uh, here, there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Preposition's so important here. Uh, there's two prepositions that are the antithesis of each other in Greek. One is in, uh, it, and it's like I-N in our terminology. The other one is ek, E-K, means to be out of or to be in. You're either in Christ or you're out of Christ. Uh, if I drew a giant circle uh, on a chalkboard uh, and put Jesus Christ in the center of that chalkboard and, and put the preposition in in the middle of the chalkboard, that's being in Christ. But you're born out of Christ. We all are. How do you get into Christ, into his family, to have a relationship with him so you can sit with him a while and talk with him, etc.? How do you get into that relationship? That comes by faith. And once you get into his family, Paul says, don't forget who you are. Don't forget who you are on God's team. That preposition is so important. Uh, this means to be in the sphere of Christ. Uh, Romans 3.24, Paul uses it this way. That little phrase, in Christ. He, this is one of his favorite terms, by the way. Uh, he says, being justified as a gift by his grace through the redemption, which is in Christ Jesus. Where did, where did the redemption come from? Well, from, from Christ. He gave it to you. It's a gift that he gave you, and you receive that gift by faith, and the minute you receive that gift by faith, you became part of his family. You became in him. Um, He also uses it over in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 2. If you want to study a church that was completely dysfunctional, study Corinthians. They had issues. But notice how he talks to the carnal Corinthians when he opens the letter to them. He says, to the church of God, which is at Corinth, those who have been sanctified uh, in Christ Jesus... Saints by calling, uh, who 
all, with all in every place, call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, their Lord and ours. He calls them those who have been sanctified. These are the carnal struggling Christians in Corinth. And Paul says, you have been sanctified. I find it very interesting in the Greek text, uh, when he says having been sanctified, he uses a perfect passive participle. And you're thinking, that is so boring. <laughs> Admit, it's not. It's like one of those things when you're reading the original text, you're like, oh yeah, I know exactly why he picked that tense. Because the perfect tense means a past act with an abiding result. And a past act with an abiding result applied to sanctification means once you're made holy by your relationship to Christ in God's courtroom by your faith, your sanctification is a past act with an abiding result. Tell that to the devil the next time he tells you you're nothing. Oh, no, no, I'm a child of God. Devil, it's a perfect participle. He knows grammar. <laughs> and, and it's passive. It's passive, not active. What's that mean? Uh, if, if it was active, the subject would be doing the acting, me. But I don't make myself holy. It's passive, meaning you're acted upon by an outside source. Who's that? God. God sanctifies you. Paul loves that little statement, in Christ you have been sanctified never changes. Galatians 3.26. He says, for you are all sons, or you could supply daughters of God through, notice the preposition, by means of faith in Christ Jesus. Your faith puts you in the sphere of Christ, never to be kicked out of Christ. So if you are a child of God and, and you have struggles with chapter 7, defeating the sin in the flesh in your life, in certain areas of your life, and you feel compromised, uh, don't listen to the devil when he comes and tells you you're nothing. I'm serious, because he will. And uh, he has a raspy voice, that you hear, I'm sure you hear it. It readily comes up and begins to mock you, degrade you, put you down, tell you you're nothing. You're probably not even a Christian. Look at your life. Look at the, you can get victory here. Uh, Paul is a great coach. And Paul says, uh, if you want power for a living, never forget who you are. Amen. You are a, a son or a daughter of God until God calls you home. Absolutely. I know I've talked about boxing. I know I've talked about wrestling. Now I need to switch metaphors, forgive me, because you're not supposed to mix metaphors in a sermon, but I'm not in school anymore, so I can do what I want. So, <laughs> but I'm telling you I'm switching metaphors, okay? So I'm gonna switch from, we, 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 we've done the wrestling, the boxing, and I wanna just talk about basketball just for a second. You cannot say we did not cover all the food groups here. Um, Michael Jordan, remember Michael Jordan? Yeah. Great basketball player, I love to watch him shoot. How does he stay in the air so long? Uh, but anyway, listen to what he says about being an athlete and then apply it to spiritual things. He says, I have missed more than 9,000 shots in my career. Whoa. I've lost 300 games. 26 times I've been trusted to take the game-winning shot, and I missed. He said, I have failed over and over again in my life, and that's why I succeed. Did you hear that? So he could have said, after losing all those games, missed the game-winning shot, everything, just get the pass the ball to somebody else. No, he said, I'm a winner because I don't look at the fact that I lost occasionally. I continually push forward. Maybe your problem in your spiritual walk is you don't realize who you are as a son or daughter of God, and you've laid down on the mat and go, well, it's nailed me again. No, you need to get off the mat and go, no, I'm a winner. Amen. Part of it's about mindset. When I wrestled in high school, that's when you, when you met your opponent uh, was backstage, you know, back in the locker rooms when they set up two, two scales and you were suited up, ready to go, and that's when you met your opponent because you'd step on the scale, you had to make weight. 
So you'd step on the scale and your opponent would step on the scale. So you see this line of, of wrestlers and that's when he would get up there. This was not the time to step up there and go, hey, how are you doing? How's your family? Praise God for you. And you didn't talk like that. Uh, yeah, it, well, it was kind of psychops. That's when you sit up there and you don't want to say anything, but you're doing everything you can, facial cues and everything, to let him know your life is mine. I mean, it's that kind of thing. You know, it's, it's, that, it's that, the, the psychops thing. And I think you tend to forget that as a, an a, athletic events teach you these types of things about yourself, that instead of being a loser of a mindset, oh, I always lose. No, that when you step up there and you tell the, the iron flesh that you battle with, no, Jesus has got this. He's going to help me. He's going to help me. Remember, uh, remember who you are. Point two, realize the power of victorious living. And it takes us a few verses to get there. It's in verse four. We identify the power. But you have a power, a resident power for victorious living. But before we get there, Paul builds an argument. He's like an attorney. He's getting to his point. He's going to build to the zenith of his point starting in verse two, where he talks about the inadequacy of the law, uh, that the law, it only points out sin. It doesn't provide for sin. Uh, and why is he talking about the law again? He's talked about the law and its strengths and weaknesses since chapter 6. So you might be sitting there yawning, going, move on, Paul. Let it go. Uh, why does he keep talking about the law? Because we, by nature, think you don't get something for nothing. And we're just like that. You got to work, and then you work, and you get this. But Jesus did all the work, and he gives you as a gift salvation. So Paul says, I understand it's built into the warp and will of your brain, you got to let it go. The law is good to a point, but it's inadequate. So realize it's inadequate. So what did it do in a positive way? Well, it revealed the holiness of God, exposed sin for what it is. It established God's standard of holiness, what is holy, what's not. It revealed man's absolute need for a savior because man can't fulfill the law because he always sins. He needs a savior who can fulfill the law. It revealed the need for a separation from uh, sinners because sin is a contaminant, which our culture has completely lost sight of. And it made Israel into an unusual, distinct historical nation of priests to God. They had the law. He says in chapter 7, uh, verse 12, he says, so then the law, when you think about it, he says, I as a Jew understand that it is holy. It's kadosh. It's holy. Uh, the commandment is holy and it's righteous and it's good. It's not, the, the, the law's not evil. The, remember we talked about this. The law's not the problem. Sin is the problem. Then he says in verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life, in Romans 8, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free, as a Christian, from the law of sin and death. Why? The law just pointed out my sin, but it couldn't fix me. Jesus set you free from that. For what the law could not do, i.e., redeem you, weak as it though it was through the flesh, God did for you. We'll get to that in a minute. We're just understanding, Paul says, don't forget in your battle with the iron flesh that the law didn't redeem you. It just pointed out the fact that you have a fleshly problem because it said what sin is. And when I moved here back in 08 of no, in November, um, I, I bought a house uh, and I was shocked that houses here had no fences. Like, you've got to be kidding me. I'm from California. Everything has a fence. There's fences everywhere. I was like, I, you can see from everybody, you, whatever they're cooking, you can see in everybody's yard. This is insane. So when, when the, when the, when the, it warmed up, and I could actually dig in the dirt. I, as a former landscaper, uh, contacted the city, found out what my boundary markers were, marked them all off, staked them out, dropped, did a chalk line, the whole shebang, uh, and uh, you know, got a post hole digger, got a 20-pound digging bar, and then I started digging all the holes. You know, I was like, this is going to be cool. My neighbor's all freaking out, like, what are you doing? I'm like, well, why wouldn't I want a fence? 
you know? And so I started building the fence and uh, dropping the post in and getting a bag of cement and pouring it in there and, and using the level to, you know, make sure it's level and setting it and pouring water in there and mixing it up, all that. Could you imagine if I eyeballed that whole thing? Could you imagine, like, what it would look like now? I mean, if I eyeballed it, it'd be like, it kind of looks good to me. Yeah. <laughs> no, I had a level. I had a big level. And as I'm setting that post and putting the water in and mixing it up so it sets up good, I mean, I am, I'm like uber doing the measure with the level. Because what do those little bubbles tell you? They're irrelevant. What do the bubbles tell you? You use the level? You understand the level? What's the bubble tell you? It's straight or not. Now, I don't know about you. I don't think my tools speak. But if the level could speak and the bubble's off, what would it be saying? Hey, Marty, little adjustment, there, right, left, etc. Okay? If, if, I don't believe it speaks, but if it could speak. Okay? I think this guy's got issues. No, no, it's a metaphor. Um, the, the, the level can just tell you that it's off. See, that's, the level's like the law. What, what did the law do? It's inadequate. It, it, it just told you what's, uh, what's off. It couldn't fix you. You need someone else to fix you. Uh, that Je- that's Jesus. He's like me building the fence. Oh, oh, you're off? Well, I can fix you. See, that's Jesus. Paul says the law is inadequate. But he says, remember the law is inadequate to save you. But he says, remember who was adequate to save you. See, that's what he gets to in verse 3. He says, what did God do? He sent his own son. In the likeness of sinful flesh, as an offering for sin, he condemned your sin uh, in the flesh. I mean, he put your sin on his son's flesh on the cross. This is, this is unbelievable. Because I had somebody tell me this week that they did not believe that one man could die for the sins of all people of all time. I mean, explain that. How could you not understand that? A sin against an absolutely holy God calls for an absolutely holy God to fix that situation. That's why the Son of God is the only God who could come to the planet, bear our sin, and and deal with sin and death at the cross. Only he could do it because the sin was against the Trinity. One of the Trinity members had to come and die for our sin. Only he could bear it all. Jesus, when he came, it tells us here in Romans 8, 3, Paul says, don't forget the adequacy of Jesus. He was on a mission. He was sent. Uh, Jesus uses this motif all throughout the Gospels. In fact, I would challenge you, uh, take the book of John, mark every time you were, find the word sent in the book of John, because Jesus is constantly saying, I'm sent, just like Romans 8, 3 says. Uh, let's peruse a couple of examples. Uh, uh, John four thirty four. Jesus said to them, my food is to do the will of him, the Father, who sent me and to accomplish his work. What work? Redemption. Um, John 5, 24, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. He he said, "I, I came here from the will of the Father. He sent me here that when you believe I'm the Messiah, the anointed one, you are immediately made a child of God. He forgives you of your sin. By no means other than you get it, other than through me. Uh, John six thirty eight, Jesus says, For I have come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but to do the will of him who sent me. What was the will of the Father? Son, I want you to leave, become a man, and, and bear the sin of man on the cross. Die for their sin, not your sin. You need to be the perfect sacrifice. And Jesus said, 
Dad, I'll do that because I love them as much as you love them. He became an offering of sin, and it says that he, he came in the likeness of, of our flesh. Some will read that and hyperventilate because they overanalyze it. Well, if it says that he was a likeness of flesh, then he really wasn't the flesh, then he really wasn't one of us. No. Uh, if you read the Gospels, you will really readily understand Jesus was totally, had a fleshly body like, like we did. He got tired when he walked somewhere, and he walked when he went somewhere. He could have just gone, boop, and just been there, but he didn't. Uh, uh, the, the heat bothered him. Crowds drained him emotionally. I mean, he was hungry, etc. He had a fleshly body. The only difference was his fleshly body uh, was wedded to the, 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 the greatness of the deity of Christ. So think of, his deity, uh, think of his deity like a massive steel beam. And think of his flesh like a wire wrapped around that. You going to break that? No. Because that wire of the flesh is wrapped around the deity of Christ. And he could be a man like us, but the steel beam of his deity makes him only choose that which is holy. His flesh was uniquely different than ours. He was fleshly, but he did not have the propensity like the first Adam to bite the dust. He could only choose that which would please the Father to become our ultimate offering. Romans teaches us much about his offering. He says he came to be an offering for sin. Not, our, uh, not uh, his sin, but, uh, but our sin. Uh, Hebrews 9.24 talks about the greatness of his work as the offering of all offerings uh, in chapter 9, verse 24, where the author, who's unknown, writes these words. He says, For Christ, uh, he, for Christ uh, did not enter a holy place, the holy of holies, uh, made with hands, uh, like the priest did in the Old Testament, a mere copy of the true one, but in heaven itself, uh, now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he should uh, offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with the blood of his own, Jesus didn't have to do that. He didn't have to go to Yom Kippur like a high priest every year and offer himself. No, he didn't have to do that. Next slide tells you what he did. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer uh, often since the foundation of the world. Notice the contrast. But now, once at the consummation of the ages, and just as a sidelight, I'd say, if it was the consummation of the ages back then, how close must we be to the appearance of God? That's a whole other sermon. Moving back to the text. The consummation of the age, he's been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for man to die once and after this comes the judgment, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sin of the many shall appear a second time for the salvation with reference to sin. To those who eagerly await him, he died one time and put all sacrificial system to, to he, he canceled it. He finished it for you and for me. Paul says, don't forget the adequacy of the death of Christ. He became your sin offering so that you are free from sin. Positionally, he's forgiven you. I don't know if Peter stands at the door of heaven and, and interviews everybody that comes in. You know what I'm saying? Have you heard this before? When you die and you stand at the gate of heaven and Peter asks you the question, why should you come in? I mean, you heard somebody ask you this before? And Peter may be really busy. I don't know. I mean, I don't know. But I mean, if Peter were to ask you, why should you come into heaven? You're like, uh, uh, I, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. Are you kidding me? That you're not going to say that. Uh, you're going to get at the gate of heaven. If Peter asks you the question, you can say, hey, I'm covered by the blood. Amen. I got the, the blood of Christ covers me. His sacrifice was my sacrifice. His victory was my victory. Peter's like, enjoy. See, he became your sacrifice. What's that got to do with power? Well, once you understand the sacrifice of Christ is true for you and your sin is forgiven, notice what Paul says in verse 4. God did all of this in order that, and that's a purpose clause in Greek. What's the purpose of the death of Christ? In order that the requirement of the law, 
for perfect obedience by the sacrifice, without blemish, must be fulfilled in us who do not walk according to the flesh, but walk according to the spirit. He said his fulfillment of the law became our fulfillment of the law. When I couldn't fulfill all the dictates and demands of the law, he came and did it for me. Why? So that I can be one who doesn't walk according to the power of iron flesh, but according to, oh, there's the key part. And we'll spend more time. I have to stop for Christmas. We'll do a four-part series for Christmas. We will circle back in January and get into chapter 8 in detail, and you're going to remember this entire sermon <laughs> in January. Uh, but this is where he introduces where your power comes from. The power to defeat iron flesh in the ring, who's it come from? Well, the Spirit of God. When do you get the Spirit of God? At the moment of conversion. He baptizes you mystically into the body of Christ and gives you the Holy Spirit to overcome the power of the flesh, but you must yield to him. I close with an illustration, uh, uh, switching metaphors again. We've covered three metaphors. We're switching metaphors again to the world of racing. You're going to come with me? What in the world? Uh, Liz has a cousin uh, who's married to a guy. He owns oil wells and stuff out in California, um, outside of Bakersfield, Taft, California. Uh, and he's pretty well-to-do. And, uh, and so he, he, he uh, likes uh, racing. And he, he has an awesome stock car. Uh, and so we went there one time, and he had an entire garage, like the size of an aircraft hangar, built for this one car. And so this massive car is sitting in the middle of this, uh, this, this huge hangar, uh, and he's got special uh, scales to weigh it for races and everything. I'm like, this is, this is unbelievable. So he's like, uh, hey, hey, would you like to climb in and start it up? Hmm, let me think about it. Uh, so I, I crawled in. I'm looking at this fire extinguisher, asking myself, what's that for? You know? And I got in there. He goes, I'm going to turn on the key. I'm going to start this thing up. Now, I, I want you to depress the, you know, the brake. And then while well, you got that down, then, then just move your foot over and just, I want you to hit it. I mean, give it all the gas you've got. And he said, and do not release the brake. <laughs> or you will be airborne, literally. And so I'm like, he started it up, and I'm just, I mean, it's just like, this is, this is better than my Ford Ranger. This is unbelievable. <laughs> and then he goes, okay, now hit, hit the gas. I hit the gas. It was just life-changing. <laughs> I was like, you need me one of these. When I get on the freeway with my Ford Ranger, I press the gas, hoping to God I emerge on and no one hits me. This, I would be 60 miles down the road in a minute. This is unbelievable. The power was unbelievable. But to unleash the power, I had to do what? I had to take the brake off. Is this not like your spiritual walk? You see what I'm saying? You, Jesus is like, got you, the car is your faith, you know? And the spirit of God's the engine, the horsepower. But you've got to yield to him. He's there going, use me as you fight the world, the flesh, the devil. Tap into me. If you're, if you're down on the mat, to go back to the other metaphor, man, I'm down and out. This always happens to me. Same sin gets me. I think Jesus is sitting there telling you in Thanksgiving, be thankful for the cross, you're my child, and be thankful for the spirit of God who dwells in you. Now yield to him and watch him deliver you from, well, put the sin in there of the flesh that, that trips you up, and he'll give you victory. Let me pray for you. God, uh, you're a God that uh, wants to lead your children to victory, but we must admit at times, uh, iron flesh gets the best of us. Help us to be obedient uh, to yield to the Spirit's power, to unleash him, to stop putting the brakes on him, but start saying, God, we, we yield to you. Give us victory as only you can give us and show us how to do that. 
And uh, for anybody in our church that doesn't know you, hasn't an idea what we're talking about, uh, I'm sure they can understand the fact that they have sin about them and they need a Savior. Make yourself uh, real to them so they come to know the Savior and so that they too get the power of the Spirit in, in their life to walk with you. Thank you for the joy of just reading the text and learning from the text. Now might we go and obey the text. In Christ's name, amen.